This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 310th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and this episode is brought to you by UCP's award-winning and critically acclaimed series, Mr. Robot, The Act, and The Umbrella Academy, now streaming and eligible for your Golden Globe and SAG Award consideration. My guest today is a Kenyan-Mexican actress who, six years ago, almost overnight, went from being a total unknown to a household name and face, not to mention a Best Supporting Actress Oscar winner, the first ever from Mexico, Kenya, or Africa, for her performance in Steve McQueen's 2013 film, 12 Years a Slave. She subsequently picked up a Tony nomination for Denai Guerrera's 2016 Broadway play, Eclipsed, the first Broadway show ever with an all-black and all-female cast and crew. And she played a key role in Ryan Coogler's 2018 film, Black Panther, the first superhero movie to star a majority black cast or to have a black writer and director or to land a Best Picture Oscar nomination. And, most recently... She starred as two characters in Jordan Peele's Us, an elevated horror flick which cost $20 million to make and, upon its release last spring, grossed $250 million, and for which she is now generating considerable Best Actress Oscar buzz. Lupita Nyong'o. Over the course of our conversation at the Los Angeles offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 36-year-old and I discussed her unusual upbringing and how she wound up at the Yale School of Drama, how she came to be cast over 2,000 other actresses to play Patsy in 12 Years a Slave, and how she tackled that grueling part, why the sudden celebrity that came with becoming only the 15th actress ever to win an Oscar for a film debut, including being named People's Most Beautiful Person in the World, caused her to take on screen roles over the next few years in which she did not show her face, such as Maz Kanata in J.J. Abrams' 2015 film Star Wars The Force Awakens, and Raksha in Jon Favreau's 2016 film The Jungle Book, before returning in front of the camera in Black Panther, why she wanted so badly to work with Jordan Peele even before he approached her with the parts of Adelaide and Red in Us, a film about a family under siege by evil twin versions of themselves, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Lauren Lolo Spencer, a 32-year-old Angeleno who was diagnosed with ALS at the age of 14, became a disability lifestyle influencer in the years thereafter, and was offered an opportunity to act for the first time in Carol Mikanofsky's indie dramedy Give Me Liberty, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival back in January, screened next at the Cannes Film Festival in May, opened in select theaters on August 23rd, and on November 21st, received four Spirit Award nominations, including one for Spencer in the category of Best Supporting Female, alongside, among others, Hustler's Jennifer Lopez. In other words, it's time for J-Lo versus Lolo. Spencer and I sat down a few days before that announcement for this conversation. Lolo, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So 
on this podcast, we like to explore people's journey to the project that they're most recently promoting. And so starting from the very beginning, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? Oh, you going all the way back. <laughs> okay, well, I was born and raised in Stockton, California, 209. What's up? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love my city. Uh, born and raised in Stockton, California. My mom... She works in human resources for the city. And my dad, although my parents aren't together and haven't been since I was a child, mm -hmm. he is an actor and a comedian. Really? Yeah, yeah. So was that where it sounded to me like prior to Give Me Liberty, mm -hmm. acting was not on the radar for you? No, not at all. Actually, it was the furthest thing that I was thinking about because when I decided to move to Southern California back in 06 for mm -hmm. college, my goal was to learn about journalism. And that was my major. And then it transitioned into editing, like video editing. Yeah. And so my thing was always wanting to be behind the camera to tell the story. Right. So that was always my thing. And then somehow, some years later, I just decided to start a YouTube after some stuff that had happened at a job. And I just been in front of the camera ever since. But I just always admired actors yeah. and the art of acting that I never felt I was would ever be good enough. So I didn't even <laughs> want to disrespect the craft. I was like, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? So well, let's, <laughs> let's go backwards uh, a little bit because I guess what were your interests as a kid? What were you thinking you might want to do when you grew up? When I was a kid, being a journalist, a Even reporter. From really young. Yes. Okay, like, so that's the Yeah, that was always like yeah. the dream. I've always been obsessed with telling stories, hearing other people's stories. Even to this day, like I'm obsessed of like watching interviews and the THR roundtables are some of my favorite things to watch. Yep. I don't know why I'm so fascinated and in love with it. I just am and always have been. There's actually this really funny video of me and all my cousins. We went to the Grand Canyon. I come from a really big family. Mm -hmm. And um, my uncle has his video camera and he's like, oh, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I want to be a reporter. Mm -hmm. And so... I it just had always wanted to be, yeah, I just always wanted to be that for some reason. <laughs> so it's interesting because that obviously, as you say, went all the way through to going off to college. In between that is when your life in a major way changed. And I yeah. just wonder if you can share for listeners who maybe haven't seen or read about Gimme Liberty, you're 14 years old, you're going about your life like everybody else. Yes. And what happened? I was in the kitchen and my mom told us, when I say us, my siblings and I, to make our plates for dinner. And I reach up in the top cupboard and my entire arm dropped to the counter. And it was very strange because I didn't drop the plate. Like I still had a grip on the plate, but my arm had just dropped out of nowhere. And I didn't know what to make of it. And my next memory after that moment was starting to go from doctor to doctor over and over again, trying to figure out what that was, what happened, whatever it was. Because by that time, my right arm was pretty much like 100% limp. Like I couldn't move it the way I used to. 
And so it was just strange. It was just really strange. And then the doctors, the facility at UCSF in San Francisco diagnosed me with ALS at 14. And did you know what ALS was at that point? No, I literally had no idea because there was no one in my family with a disability, none of my friends. There wasn't any people in close proximity with disabilities in my life. So I didn't know what it was. And even when my mom told me separately, I was like, I didn't even really have a reaction because I didn't know what it was. So I was like, um, okay, I guess I'll like, can I go back and watch TV? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so just over time, I had to learn. When I started looking up what it was on the early days of the internet, like dial-up style, um, <laughs> I would read the statistics and, you know, what happens to people with ALS and, you know, people recommending shows like those medical shows and being like, oh, they're doing one about ALS. You should watch this. So we would watch it. And me and my mom would just kind of be like, wait, what? Well, like, what does this mean? And early on, not even realizing how powerful the decision was at that time, I just always knew, like, that wasn't going to be my life. In the sense that you were not going to let this define you, you were not going to let it affect your daily outlook? Not only just that, but I knew my body would not respond in the same way that statistics say. Like, statistics say, you know, patients die after five to seven years, you know? And I was like, no, I'm not going nowhere. Like, <laughs> no, I'm like, I still got to go to college. I right. still got boys to meet. I'm still trying to see what's going on in this world. So I, I just knew like that wasn't going to happen to me in certain symptoms and stuff. I was like, no, that, that can't happen to me. Like I still have to do X, Y, and Z. I've, I've always been a big dreamer. That was always my thing. Like, I've always just had big dreams. And so when I would read the statistics on that, I was like, nah, that doesn't make sense to my dreams. And you have blown away the statistics because <laughs> it's like multiple times the statistics for you, right? Exactly, exactly. So much so that like there's still question on whether or not ALS is a proper diagnosis. What else do you, th have, have you had that re-examined? I have had it re-examined uh, lightly. You know, sometimes talking to doctors isn't the most pleasant experience. Right, I'm sure, I'm sure. So even when I reinvestigated it, it was very dismissive. And I wasn't appreciative of it. Mm -hmm. And so much so to where I'm like, okay, if you're being dismissive about it, then how do I even know you're really doing what I need you to do to figure out the true answer to this? So I just stopped. I and just stopped going to the clinic. I I just stopped. I only go to the doctor like if I have a cold or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, the other thing that's interesting is that regardless of what it is, yeah. which it you know, let's let's accept for the sake of argument that it is ALS and you're kind of a, a incredible person to have defied all the rules. Regardless of what it is, you still have a situation that is yeah. on your hands and you have Absolutely. chosen to do something valuable for others. And it started, if you can explain, I mean, I only recently got a grasp on what it means to be a, an influencer, period. Yeah. You are now a very specific type of influencer. Yes. I coined the title myself. Okay, tell what it is. Um, I 
use the title of a disability lifestyle influencer. Right. So when my YouTube channel, Sitting Pretty, started and I started seeing the response and the reaction and then kind of the business part of being a YouTuber where brands would reach out and say, hey, can you review my product, blase, blase. I realized that it was going from being a channel documenting my life to really being of influence mm -hmm. and really being just like any other influencer that we see on social media and on YouTube. And so for me, I was like, I do the same exact thing, but my niche is specifically surrounded around disability lifestyle. Meaning if I review a product, it's from the perspective of accessibility. Who can use this? Who can't use it? Why is it accessible? Why it isn't accessible? Those kinds of things. But it's also done and the content is created in the same fast cut fashion as the rest of influencer style content that's created out there. So I was like, I'm just going to call myself a disability lifestyle influencer. And you got a big following pretty quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, and, and my audience is 100% organic, mm -hmm. which is really a blessing because I told myself from the jump, if someone is going to follow me on Instagram, YouTube, whatever platform, I want it to be because they know who I am and what I do. Because my world is so specific that I ain't got time for people to just be on there saying stuff for the sake of just saying stuff and not understanding and me having to explain every time why sometimes you might see me in my wheelchair and sometimes you might not see me in my wheelchair. You know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to understand this is about disability lifestyle and it's just going to be done in my way. So I wanted people to follow specifically for wanting to learn, wanting to be educated even influence to go about the world differently, think a little bit differently, and think about people with disabilities in a completely different light that media often shows us. So that is a big part of your life. Another part, I believe, is marketing. Is that sort of what you also do to as your career? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I do still work a full-time job mm -hmm. in marketing, and that is also a great gig to have because uh, one, it pays my bills <laughs> consistently. <laughs> right. So thank you. Yep. But also it allows me the opportunity to also mention ways that disability inclusion can be represented. It's another way to learn the art of marketing and the importance of it and how it can be done versus being from the perspective of saying, you need to do this. You corporations need to do this, this, that. Having the experience and education of being in marketing, now I could come at it from an educated perspective mm -hmm. and say, hey, corporation X, Y, and Z company, when you create your next marketing campaign, here's a way that you can slide in disability inclusion without feeling like you have to compromise your entire message to fit a particular group. Well, just one question that occurs to me as you're talking. I think most people want to use the proper respectful mm -hmm. terms, right? Yeah. So growing up, I know we would you would see it says handicap parking or it right. would say various different words. 
That's not really the word to use today, right? No. I mean, I'm usually not a fan of it either. Mm-hmm. I actually learned at an event not too long ago that the term came from, you know what, I'm not even going to quote it because I don't want to quote it wrong, but it was something about when disabled people way, 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 way back mm-hmm. in the day, when they would try to make money, they would have their hand in cap or something like uh, that. So it's like to ask for money yeah. kind of thing. So And that's where handicap comes from. Yeah. Again, don't all the way quote me on right. that story, no, but, but it mean, was something along the lines of It wasn't a positive that. connotation. It wasn't a positive connotation. So handicap usually isn't a proper word. And a lot of times people in the community don't like disabled. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with disabled, disability, some other more inclusive sounding terms would be like differently abled. Mm-hmm. Someone used another one today on my Instagram and I was like, oh, that's a cute one. <laughs> but I can't remember it right now. But I know like differently abled is like one. Even special needs can be a little rocky as a term. You know, it's one of those things where some people are very prideful of who they are and how they live their life that they're like, I'm not a special need, like I'm not specially needed. Like I'm here, you know, I just have different abilities, different abilities, stuff like that. So I'm not against, you know, the term special needs either. Mm -hmm. I understand why people are offended by it. I don't know if I would be offended if someone's like, Oh, your special needs or not. Maybe a little bit because I'm just older. Yeah. So I don't know. That, that That's usually one of those questions that I do get hung up on sometimes because I'm like, I don't know, because everyone is so different. Yeah. The spectrum is so large in the community that, you know, but I know you can never really go wrong with differently abled. Definitely abled. So, yeah. Yeah. That's okay. So that's a good, <laughs> so we can start there. good thing for Long me and our listeners. <laughs> no, well, I mean, so, okay, so this is all to say that you're going about your life probably maybe two years ago, I think, is about when what happens where you're not trying to be an actor you haven't been acting you have no plans to act (laughs) in the future and what happens so because of the buzz that i was getting on my youtube channel i had a good friend who i deem as my mentor she's also my stylist her name is stephanie thomas she's been a disability fashion styling expert for over 20 years she recommended that I get an agent because she was seeing what was happening on my YouTube and how people were responding to me on social media. And so I got hooked up with an agency, KMR Diversity, shout out to them. (laughs) Um, So I got hooked up there and just being with them for a while, after a few months, my agent called me and told me, hey, there's these filmmakers who are specifically looking for a young black woman in a wheelchair to be in their film. Would you want to audition? And I'm like, okay. Like, <laughs> I was just like, well, I mean, I guess if the shoe fits. Right. But <laughs> and that's but, a pretty specific yeah, niche. A, right, exactly. That's a pretty, <laughs> that is a Louboutin if I ever heard one. <laughs> but, and so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll audition. And... Kirill, our director, and our producer, Alice, just, I guess, loved me immediately. And then that's how the journey started. Well, and so do you happen to know this, basically, just to identify the the key players here, the first person you mentioned, Alice, is Alice Austin, who is Mm -hmm. a playwright who wrote and produced Gimme Liberty. Yes. And then Carol Mikanovsky is the director who sort of, this was 
sort of inspired by his own experiences as a driver of a van for differently abled people mm-hmm. and just some of the insanity that happens along the way of doing that job. Yeah. So that's the core of this film. But I'm wondering also, do you happen to know if they were specifically only seeing differently abled people or was there ever because you know the way it's there's been some backlash and probably rightly so in Hollywood that you know you're having female characters played by males you're having Mm -hmm. black characters played by white people Mm -hmm. so I would imagine in the same way that that's gotten some backlash if they had had an able-bodied person playing a differently abled character that would not have gone over very well at all (laughs) it would have been all bad news because and this is the reason why because i've heard that debate going on and this is where society needs to open their ears um so the thing is is when it comes to wanting to be an actor in hollywood right when you're making a script and you're creating characters Essentially, it starts off with your imagination, unless it's some type of autobiography or some biopic type situation. But let's say a majority of the films are start from scratch from somebody's imagination. They put together a script. It's time to cast. It is so incredibly rare that a character with a disability is even imagined in a story, Mm -hmm. first and foremost. Right. So when that one time out of 300 million movies that probably Mm -hmm. get made a year happens and you aren't even considering, you don't even allow people with that particular disability of that character that you created from your imagination anyways to even come in and audition, that's when it's troubling because even in the majority of scripts with characters none of them are even written with characters with disabilities so you're not even going to cast those characters as characters with disabilities when we could play those roles as well so it's like you're not casting us in the roles in general then when you are calling for a character with a disability, you still don't cast us. So where does the actor, the person who has dreamt and dreamed just like everyone else to be on a movie screen, be on a TV show, be on a web series now, be on a streaming service now, where do they get the opportunity to live out their dream equally as anybody else? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great point and I guess I'm wondering you know just I can imagine somebody playing devil's advocate and saying in a certain situation like I guess the most famous Mm -hmm. depiction of a person with ALS in a movie would be probably the theory of everything right with with Stephen Hawking yes so in that movie they have to show how Stephen Hawking was before the diagnosis right so would that be sort of an excused usage of an able-bodied actor in order to you couldn't have the same person play because you know he was very different after a period of time is that something that would be understood or is there a how would you feel about the like you know eddie redmayne won an oscar for this part right so in my personal opinion that would be something that makes sense yeah 
because you do have to show him before the diagnosis and after the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But in situations where the moment you see this character on screen of course and they have a disability right. it's like and that's give, give me liberty which right. is from the minute you show up in the van or for the van that's what's sort of rare about this movie is i mean i can't even think of too many other movies where it's not hey look at how this person got to be differently abled right. but it's just a fact of life and so i wonder for you you know, seeing that there was going to be such a movie, then getting to be a part of it, and then going about doing it, just was it an emotional thing? Was it exciting? How did you feel as these things happened? You know what? It was an interesting experience. Because it was an indie film, me, Kirill, and Alice were speaking on and off for two years before we even went into production. So there was a part of me that's like, this ain't gonna happen. <laughs> they keep, okay, we've, okay, we're about to go to production now. Oh, wait, right. nope. It's like, you know, so there was that part of like, I don't even know if this is a real movie mm -hmm. happening at this point, especially being someone who's never acted before. I don't know if this is normal or not to, when it comes to producing a film. So I'm kind of just confused. Mm -hmm. But they were so passionate and adamant about making the film happen that I was like, okay, eventually they're going to come through. I just don't know when it's going to happen. Right. Like two years is quite some time to be on hold. Right. And then when we finally got word that it was in production, because I knew how small the budget was, because they would tell me like, you know, they never gave specifics, but just say, you know, we're working on a budget. This is an indie film, blase, blase. You know, I was like, well, I don't even know if this movie's going to even finish getting made. Right. Because being an editor, I know post-production is a whole other level right. of production and financing and everything else. So I was like, oh, well, you know, hopefully it comes out one day. <laughs> and then when they brought me back for pickups... That's when I found out that we had gotten into Sundance. Which is a big deal. I was like, what? <laughs> I was, I, I literally low-key freaked out. <laughs> because I was like, oh my gosh, Sundance? Right. Sundance? <laughs> like, I just, I just couldn't even, like, take it. And then when I told my mom, it was so funny. I told my mom, I was like, mom, we got into Sundance. And she's like, okay, baby. I'm like, mom, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah, this is Sundance. Right. I was like, everyone comes out at Sundance. Yeah. Everyone who's great comes out at Sundance. So that's, right. that's when I knew, okay, there's something happening here. And there's a promising future with this film. And that's when I was like, okay, I get it now. This, this, now it's about to turn real. So for, you know, one of the things that was in every review remarked upon after Sunday, people saw this at Sundance for the first time was who is this Lolo Spencer? Because you were a, a big scene stealer, especially for somebody who'd never acted before. And I guess I just wonder, as you think back to the making of the movie, was there a part that was most challenging, a part that was most fun? Just did you yourself think it was going well, or did you have to hear it from other people that you'd done a good job? You know what? Before I went 
out there to Milwaukee. When I say out there, I mean Milwaukee because that's where the film was mm-hmm. shot. Before I went out to Milwaukee, I'm a very spiritual person, so I did a lot of praying because I was like, Lord, I ain't never been in no situation like this before. It's about to be freezing. I've never been in the snow before. I'm a California girl through and through. I don't know nothing about no snow. I was concerned because I didn't know physically how my body would react to that kind of cold. So that was a concern genuinely like what, and I expressed that to them too. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know how my body's going to react to this kind of cold. I've never been in these kind of conditions, you know? So there was that level to it and they were so accommodating. It was beautiful. And then I was like, I've never been around this many old people at one time. (laughs) It was just a lot of layers that I had never been around. Mm -hmm. But I told myself, I was like, as long as I know every day that I can show up and leave knowing I did the best that I could, then I would be okay with however it ends up looking on the screen. I was going to try my hardest. I was going to dig deep for whatever... The scene required. I would be open to what our director had to say. I would also be sure that I advocated for myself when I needed to, yeah. um, because I know how a lot of the times when you are a person with a disability who really lives their life full of, you know, fun and excitement or whatever, very confidently, a lot of the times people will start to forget that you have a disability. So they start to expect you to do things and push you to a limit that you're like, wait, wait, wait. Remember, I still have a disability. I still have to worry about my health first. I know the scene is important, but let's take a break Mm -hmm. because, you know, I might need it. So I wanted to make sure I advocated for myself when I needed to. And that was my prayer before I went. And that's, what it was so when i had to yell at somebody i just yelled you know (laughs) i i I built up all of that frustration that i've had over the years having real life experiences similar to what was happening in the film when i had to be nice and sweet you know that's naturally who i am you know when i got to be funny that's naturally who i i love just being funny the scene where you get picked up because your wheelchair is stuck in the ground that was some that was some good uh deadpan comedy that was great exactly you know so it's just like wherever i could exercise my abilities i did and so all of it was just a good time it like i said my only concern was making sure i did my best Mm -hmm. especially knowing how passionate my director and producer were about this project i didn't want to let them down and did you have a sense of why everyone was passionate in making this project was it was there a message to the film that was the reason you also believed in it yes absolutely it was because of the representation that i knew this film would have that was one of the main reasons why i signed on because tracy's character is not about her disability she just so happens to be a wheelchair user everything else about her all dialogue, all of that stuff was nothing that was directly pointed to or within reference to the fact that she had a disability. It was just a part of who she was. And I appreciated that 
so much. And that was one of the reasons why I had signed on because what that would mean, whether it made it to theaters or not, or whether it got finished or not, I knew that once people saw it and they at least saw this much, that it would be a game changer in some way. So I guess the last question is just, what is next for you? You've got such a great response to your performance here that I wonder if you've had to rethink things and now either in addition to or instead of the marketing and the lifestyle influencing and all that, are you now an actress? Yes. So call people should reach out. Yes. Everybody reach out. <laughs> I I yeah. am a very nice person. <laughs> yes, I will vouch for that. Yes, yeah. yes. No, seriously, acting is definitely something I want to continue to explore in everything that I do, whether it's YouTube, social media influencing, modeling, acting, public speaking. The purpose is to push for disability representation and inclusion, specifically in entertainment and beauty industries, because those are the industries that we know shift culture and promote change. And wanting to showcase disability lifestyle in a way that is fun, exciting, full of life, that really isn't ever shown. So whatever vessel avenue that I get the opportunity to share that experience and share that reality, I, you know, I hop on it. So acting is definitely something that I will continue to do. Well, thank you for doing this. Congratulations on the movie. And I think a lot of people could learn a lot from you. It's an amazing story and thank uh, you so much. very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. And now for my conversation with Lupita Nyong'o. All right, Lupita, great to see you again. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Of course. We uh, always begin on this podcast with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Mexico, Mexico City, and I was raised in Nairobi, Kenya, my father is, uh, is and was a politician, and my mother worked in communications, and now she runs the Africa Cancer Foundation. Yes. And can you share the story behind your beautiful and unusual name? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm called Lupita, and because I was born in Mexico, my parents thought it was fitting yes. to give me a Mexican name. The reason why they settled on Lupita is because in my mother tongue, my father's name is Peter, mm -hmm. and uh, in my mother tongue, Luo, to Luo means to follow. And so I followed Peter to Mexico. So. Great, great. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that your dad's in politics and was in politics when you were growing up. And I wonder when you first were able to appreciate the sort of almost, I guess, danger and risk of the situation that you and your family were in it for a while. It wasn't a coincidence that you were born in Mexico, and I know it's affected other members of your family. I just think it's, you know, it might shed some light on what kind of a, a childhood you had. The, there's many facets of it, but this had to have been a big, a big part of it. Yeah, it was a big part of it. I think because I was born into it, you know, my father was always a politician as far as I can remember. Yeah. But my mom 
they both worked really hard to give us stability and they kind of shielded us from the uncertainties in our lives. But there were times when my father would be under, he would be um, held in detention and, and stuff like that. He'd be detained and we wouldn't know where he was for lengthy periods of time. And I remember now that I'm older, I remember registering the concern in my mom's face, the tears and stuff. She always covered it up with one story or another. And I had a very imaginative mind. Mm -hmm. So I had stories happening in my mm -hmm. head anyway. And so they kind of just meshed with reality. So it wasn't, I don't, I, I feel like I registered the trauma, but processed it at different times, yeah. you know? So I remember my dad coming back from detention and him being extremely thin, but I was so happy to see yeah. him that I couldn't see how emaciated he was, you know, those kinds of things, which then later when my family's discussing these things, you then recognize that were much harder than they seemed. And the reason that a family from Kenya goes to Mexico, it was related to this as well, right? Yeah, yes, it was. Uh, my father had a brother who disappeared and was never found. Mm -hmm. He worked at the port in, okay. in Mombasa. But mm -hmm. so we were never, we, we don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, all that was found of him was his car and his shoes. So when that disappearance happened, uh, it, it was, many people were disappearing, yeah. but, you know, inexplicable accidents yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So it was a very, very, very strong sign that my father needed to, to leave yeah. and, and, yeah, and high for a bit. Well, so between probably Mexico, the years that you were there were maybe too young to necessarily have had what I'm about yeah. to ask you happen. <laughs> but when a kid's forming an imagination and consuming arts or performance, let's say, so what were what were the introductions, the early sort of introduction to film, TV, theater for you? And then also in terms of dis just first displays of interest in doing it yourself. I'd read about an aunt who I think may have been an actress at one point. So just how did, what was your exposure to the arts? And then how did you begin to get, dip your toe into it? Yeah. So I left Mexico before I turned one. Oh, so there's no I memory. actually, I have zero, zero memory of that time. Mm -hmm. I actually started walking in Queens, New York, <laughs> where my dad was working for the United Nations for a bit. And then we didn't last longer than six months there. And yeah. then the rest of my life, you know, my formative years were spent in, yeah. in Nairobi. And so what I remember, my parents had recorded Mexican television onto VHSs. And just to give you context, when I was really little, we still had black and white TV. So I remember the first color TV coming when I was like probably like four or five. Wow. And that being a big moment. Yeah. So my first influences were I loved Peanuts. Mm -hmm. My favorite was... Linus von Pelt, he had a blanket and sucked his thumb and I sucked my thumb. So I felt we had a lot in common and I would make people watch that, that VHS tape over and over and over mm -hmm. again. I remember Menudo. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah the, that, the, the band. There's like a, a, or a, team, maybe a, a TV Yeah. I remember it. Kids Incorporated. <laughs> we had that TV. So we, we my parents recorded American yeah, TV yeah. too. So I had those those things on repeat. I yeah. didn't have a lot of options, you yeah. know. And then I remember very early on re watching The Color Purple. Mm. And that was the first time that, you know, I saw black people really on TV. Other than that, there it was Sound of Music, which is still one of my mm -hmm. favorites. And and then Mary Poppins, which I can I can take <laughs> or leave, but <laughs> Sound of Music. So I had Sound of Music, The right. Color Purple and 
and Linus Van Pelt. And then what was the what was the story with this aunt? Well, my aunt, she was she her name is Amondi, mm-hmm. uh, which is my middle name as well. Mm-hmm. And she was a visual artist, mm-hmm. but she was also an actress. And so she would organize these skits that we would do for family gatherings. Now, to give you some more perspective, yeah, yeah. my father comes from a family of eleven children, oh and my, my mother God. from a family of eight. So I had lots of (laughs) cousins cousins you know my social scene was definitely my cousins (laughs) and so on my my mom's side this is an aunt from my mom's side so she would uh, organize us little ones and we would perform these pieces for the family you know at weddings at birthday parties that kind of thing so that was my first real taste at um uh, at the performance so when did uh, how did it end up if one thing i read is correct that 14 there's like a kenyan theater company this Mm -hmm. like this is now a big deal you're playing juliet in a production of romeo and juliet Mm -hmm. so between the you know fun stuff around the house and playing juliet it must have had to get serious well, my aunt would encourage me always to act, and I tried out for school plays and, and everything like that. I got small roles, mm-hmm. and then she called me one day and said, I think you should audition for the annual musical they did at this theater called mm-hmm. Phoenix, which has since folded. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I, I didn't think, I didn't even... I had never considered that. But if my aunt said I should do it and could do it, then I just believed her because she'd always encouraged me. Mm-hmm. And so I did audition for the musical, mm-hmm. but the the artistic director pulled me aside and said, look, you're really good, but you just are too young. Mm-hmm. I was 13 and they had, you know, people in their 20s. Mm-hmm. He was like, there's going to be drinking and smoking. We can't <laughs> have you amidst that kind of thing. And then a few weeks later, we got a letter asking me and my mom to come to the theater. And he sat us down and he said, I would love for your daughter to play Juliet. And I just started crying. My mom started crying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just That's like, a big deal. It yeah. was a big, big, big deal. Yeah. And and then he was the one who kind of ushered me into understanding Shakespeare. I loved Shakespeare mm-hmm. because my father would always read Shakespeare to us. Mm-hmm. He was a thespian himself. Mm-hmm. He'd been in the theater and, and he played different roles. And he would recite Shakespeare to us. And he always wow. thought it was just so marvelous you know uh, and so i i had always liked shakespeare and so james falkland was Mm -hmm. his name and he over the school holidays the christmas holidays we sat down together every day and he deciphered shakespeare for me that's great in preparation well one question that occurred to me just reading other profiles and interviews was you know today we you've been on the cover of magazines as the most beautiful person in the world. You've been, you know, every, but every adjective uh, positive that there is about your parents. But did you grow up feeling beautiful? I know that you've just, I believe, recently put out a children's book that deals with the, the uh, a character's complicated relationship with the shade of the color of her skin. And I think that that may be somewhat autobiographical. <laughs> Completely. Completely, yes. <laughs> it's a liberal yes, autobiography yes. with a little bit of magic just yes, sprinkled in it. Yes. yes, it is. And it's definitely a book that is, I drew straight from my life. Yeah, so I think the result of not seeing very much of my complexion in imaginative spaces, TV, movies, uh, magazines, even children's books, resulted in me having having learning or processing it as unworthiness you know one of the first 
pictures I drew of my family, I used cream colored crayons because I didn't think that we belonged in in pictures, you know, because I just didn't see it, you know. And I thought that the only things that are worthy of being in a book are white. And so then that also, what that ends up showing up as in a society is a preference for lighter skin, you know, is the colonial mentality. When one that wasn't being challenged very much by my world, you know, even in school, the curriculum, I learned about the Thames River, not about Nairobi River that was flowing through right. the school uh, it, I was at, you know. And so, also, by the way, in school wasn't, I mean, this was even being sort of reinforced by teachers, right? Yeah. My teacher in second grade said to me, where are you going to find a husband? Your husband's supposed to be darker than you. And I remember these things because they were actually, they hurt me mm -hmm. and they confused me. And I then suffered from a self-esteem issue, you know, and it took a while for me to figure that out. And uh, it took seeing people like me, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Oprah Winfrey, Alec Weck, mm -hmm. Iman, you know, seeing such people being lorded as beauties and being valued for something other than their skin, uh, but also being valued in their skin mm -hmm. for me to then begin to even consider so associating that with myself. Mm. And just as one side note, because this is also something with which you are very closely associated ever since you've been in the public eye. Mm -hmm. I think it was in your teens that you first decided you're going with short hair, right? That was not, yeah, in my late was that teens. a big decision? Yeah, it was big, but it was also small. Yeah. You know, the big stuff is the small stuff. Yes. So I took a while for me to get to that decision. What it was is that I, I had been relaxing. I remember when I was early teen, I really, really, was suffering from a lot of self-esteem issues. I hated the texture of my hair and I would hide in the bathroom between uh, during the school breaks mm -hmm. because I, uh, my I, my hairstyle wasn't acceptable. I was in a mixed school after having been in an all-girls school for the first 6 years of my education. And so I just was very self-conscious and I begged my mother to relax my hair and finally my father intervened and and um, my mother finally accepted and I got went to relax my hair so I had this relaxed hair from age I want to say 14 to age 18 mm -hmm. and then I just really got tired of going to the salon every weekend <laughs> it was just the upkeep right. was unbearable right. and and then out of defiance really i decided to shave it all off my father was also complaining because <laughs> it was out of his pocket that i was financing my hairdos and he said why don't you just cut it off yeah. and so one day i said you know what i'm gonna do that yeah. and i cut it all off all off and he didn't notice for maybe a month <laughs> He didn't notice. No, he didn't. Oh, my God. He didn't notice because he was always so busy. And then one day he just looked up at me at the breakfast table and he said, where's your hair? <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny. Well, I think now there's there's a, a, a whole generation of people that go into to hairdressers requesting the Lupita. So, I mean, it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, but, um, sure did. So in 2003, at the age of 20, I believe, mm -hmm. you went off to Hampshire College in Amherst, which is one of my favorite places in the in the world, just the city, the town of Amherst. Yeah. And I guess 
the idea there, you you were coming to America mm-hmm. for your education, which is not an uncommon thing, I think, for folks in Kenya of, you were saying, middle class people. They mm-hmm. It's pretty common. Mm-hmm. And you came there, though, to study what? What was the focus? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't really know. And I think that was one of the reasons why America seemed like the right place for me to be, because there's something like being undecided. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a box you can yes. tick on a form. <laughs> That was pretty that was cool. gr- yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. I knew that I I certainly wasn't going to be an actor because that just wasn't really a practical option. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't grow up seeing anybody around me who was doing that for a living and only that. So and I, I wanted to be successful at what I did. And I certainly didn't want to be <sighs> broke. So I thought, let me do something else. <laughs> I was gonna, I was going to, I was interested in film and, you know, behind the scenes. And that felt like a more legit, mm-hmm. acceptable thing to do. And so I was going to do that. And then there was like African studies. And so I did that. And, you know, at, at Hampshire, you get to design your own major. Oh, cool. Which when I started, mm-hmm. I didn't particularly care for mm-hmm. because I'm j- I had been in a very structured system until then. And I didn't know what to do without the structure. Mm-hmm. But very soon I, I learned that I could self-actualize. Mm-hmm. I could, I could, uh, that I had the tools to set goals for myself and achieve them. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, Hampshire became a really good place to do that, you know, to set my own goals and to explore my curiosities mm-hmm. without, and without limitation. And then it seems like you were able to indulge the, the film making interest on your summer breaks where, so you go yeah. back to, Kenya. And it's kind of amazing that, you know, people, it's, it really is like a Cinderella story. You were on film sets in the, in the early or mid two thousands, but they were, it was not as somebody in front of the camera. What were you doing in Kenya on film sets? Well, I went on vacation to Kenya, my first summer vacation from Hampshire. And literally the day after I landed, we were driving through my neighborhood and I saw tents and trucks and I asked what's that and my mom was like oh they're filming something and that piqued my interest Mm -hmm. and I was like well I have to find my way onto that set I don't know what it is but I want to I want to have that experience and that night I have happened to have dinner with a friend of mine Mm -hmm. who had a small role in the movie and so he facilitated the introduction and the very next day I was on you know on trial as a, a uh, production <laughs> assistant on the set and I worked my butt off. Was this the constant gardener? <laughs> this was the constant gardener. Yeah. I worked my butt off and before I knew it I was first team production assistant yeah. which meant I was in charge of all the lead actors and stuff like that and I loved doing it you know mm. and I remember at one point on the set there were a few of the crew some men asked me why are you here you're a politician's daughter you're doing this menial job and i honestly had never thought of it as menial mm-hmm. i i was loving where mm-hmm. i was at mm-hmm. when i was there yeah. you know and i was learning so much so for me i've never and even now when i think back at that i never i never scoff at it mm-hmm. because it was me cutting my teeth and me being able to see pros do their job you know watching rachel vice mm-hmm. and the choices she was making and the, the difference between her approach to to Ray Fiennes, mm-hmm. you know, it was really, really rewarding to watch. And, and you had an interaction with, with Ray Fiennes, actually, right? Wasn't there a yeah. sort of, I guess, you know, I don't know what if it was just like a craft services break or something, but it sounds like he had some advice. 
Yeah, we we spent a lot of lunches together. You know, the, they would all, all mingle mm. with 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 the rest of us, us plebeians. <laughs> and uh, yeah, at one point over lunch, he asked me what it was I wanted to do, and I told him, uh, you know, very shyly that I wanted, I think I want to be an actor, and mm. he sighed, <laughs> a very deep sigh, right. and he said, you know, Lupita, only do that if there's nothing else in the world you want to do, mm. because. I've, he said, you know, he's seen how tough it can be, especially mm -hmm. for women. And he was not wrong. Mm -hmm. And it m gave me pause, mm -hmm. you know, and it gave me something to think about. Mm -hmm. And I really, it took me a few years to really just investigate within myself why it was I mm -hmm. wanted to be an actor. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I wanted to do it because it's the thing that I feel gives me the most sense of purpose. Mm -hmm and um where i feel most useful and alive mm -hmm. and uh, creative mm -hmm. and there is something poetic about the fact that for that movie rachel vice won the best supporting actress oscar that just eight years later the same one went to you yeah so it was crazy <laughs> we yeah we did a we did a photo shoot shortly after i won mm -hmm. and, with, with rachel oh really and it was just the most surreal yeah. moment. I was like, wow, yeah, this, <laughs> this is, this also can be life. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and I know there were other film sets that you worked on after that. I think the namesake and others. Yeah, as well. I worked on namesake. I did post post production. Mm -hmm. I was an intern at Mirabai Films while the movie was being cut. Got it. And I also did. I was also in the art department of a little film called "Where God Left His Shoes," mm -hmm. as well. That here was all in, in Kenya, or where was no, that? No, that was in New York. Mm -hmm. It was this this uh, semester I that I that I was I had taken a semester abroad, which mm -hmm. was a semester in New York, <laughs> and um, yeah, where I was yeah. just um, uh, yeah trying my hand at different roles within the film industry. So when you graduated. And rather than staying in the U.S., even though you had decided you want to be an actress, you go back to Kenya. Mm -hmm. Why were you, I believe, there until 2009 when you started Yale School of Drama? What was, what was the thought process of going back to Kenya? Well, you know, after you finish your undergrad as an international student, you are granted what is known as the optional professional training year. Mm -hmm. And it's just one year where you can work in your field of study. Being interested in, in film and, and, and acting and everything, it's very hard to find a stable job that will keep you occupied for a year. Mm -hmm. So during that year, I took an administrative job working for a, a new business, which was somewhat, it was supposed to be creative, but it ended up being very administrative. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was using QuickBooks, and I don't know the first <laughs> thing about QuickBooks. <laughs> so I was doing this as a nine to five, you yeah. know, to get by. And then when I could, I would do auditions and, and stuff like that. But after 10 months of doing that, I just had a come to Jesus moment. I mean, it was either I commit to that role and have my visa extended, mm -hmm. but that would totally exempt me from being able to even find out whether I have enough talent to be an actor mm -hmm. or I go home mm -hmm. or be an illegal immigrant. And mm -hmm. that just wasn't an option right. for me. And so I decided to go home mm -hmm. because at home, what it afforded me was the time to 
get myself together mm-hmm. to really put my ducks in a row and figure out what the next step was going to be and I have supportive parents I really really do and my mother would always say you have a roof over your head in Nairobi mm-hmm. you know and I had to remember that love and that support and I chose it so how do you end up applying to and getting into probably the most prestigious drama program there is, the Yale School of Drama, mm-hmm. where it's a three-year program. And in fact, I think just before you started it in 2009, you'd already landed professional work. So the, explain the chronology here. What <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny. I mean, I went... There's, it seems like there's an order and everything, but really it didn't happen like that. No. I, I left New York and I went back home and I, I was in a critical stage. I was really, I was really in a, a low place. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really lost. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was I wanted to do. And my mom handed me this book called Map for Life. And it's basically a a book that helps you organize your life, helps you investigate your where you where you are, where you want to go, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we went on a family vacation over the Christmas break. And I took that time, my mom said, take this time and just, you know, and just figure things out for yourself. So I spent a lot of that Christmas break on my own just working through the worksheets of this mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. and and one of the things it asks you is like you know in an ideal world what would you do and I remember thinking about it and and that was the first time that I honestly admitted to myself in a voice that I could hear that I wanted to be an actor and I wrote it down and I remember just crying it's something about like excavating that truth that was just you know for so long I had wanted to do it but always played it off as just like an extracurricular activity and so I wrote it down and and um, another thing they encourage you to do is to claim it own it say, say it and so I remember I went to my mom and I said to her I mean, I think I've decided what I want to do. And she said, what? And I said, I want to be an actor. She said, I knew that since you were five, (laughs) you know, and that was just such a, uh, I mean, it was a moment of approval that made all the difference, Uh you know, that she was saying, she was saying that I was becoming more of myself that I, you know, a self that she'd seen even before I was aware of myself. And so how does somebody who's based on another continent even apply to get into the Yale School of Drama? Do you do it over, over video or how do you, what do you do? You have to show up. You have, you have to, to show physically up. show up. So I needed sponsorship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to my dad next mm-hmm. and I told him what I wanted to do. And I asked him whether he would be so kind as to financially mm-hmm. support my mm-hmm. trip to the U.S. to audition. And he said, yes, I will. And, you know, and he, he said to me, you know, just be the best at whatever you want to do. So, you know, the fact that you're applying, you want to apply to Yale, that's good. Mm-hmm. You know, that resonated mm-hmm. very well with him. Yeah. And so I did. I, 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 I flew to the U.S. And, and auditioned. But I found out about Yale. I didn't know that there was a, pr- a drama program. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that until I was at Hampshire. And another Kenyan student named Gilbert O'War, mm-hmm. who was a friend of mine and had been in Romeo and Juliet with me, oh my God. got into the school. <laughs> and that was when it was... Uh, the idea the seed was planted and that's why it's so important to have examples of yourself in the Mm -hmm. world you know because for him to get in he was a Kenyan Mm -hmm. and he and he was where I was from and he got into the school it planted the seed in my head that 
it could mm-hmm. possibly, maybe happen for me. And how many people ultimately were in your class at Yale? We were 15. I'm sure there. I don't even want to. I I can't even imagine how many apply for those 15. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a long shot. It was a long shot. But I applied to other schools Mm -hmm. as well to make this trip worth my my while. And yeah, it was it was a long shot. But, you know, by the time I arrived on American soil, I couldn't freak out because. I had I come from too far, yeah, you know. Yeah. I just had to do what I could do, mm-hmm. and then leave the leave the rest up to to fate, destiny, and God. And when you were at Yale, I think that you it's it seems like, and from what I remember talking also on this podcast with Denia Guerrera mm-hmm. and others, you had sort of a surrogate family of people there who, to this day, I think you're still pretty close with, and she is one of them. And I think that this was the beginning aside from just your studies of also being involved with Yale Rep and I think the first first encounter with Eclipse, which yeah. is going to come back in the picture later. But just those years, what would you say the main value or takeaway from the, from the Yale School of Drama years has been? Well, I think it's the value of the arts, mm-hmm. you know, to be in an institution and in a school, a program, where everyone is taking the play seriously mm-hmm. was such a gift because I just had never had that. Mm-hmm. It had always been a few people who were really into it, but really, when are you going to get a real job? You know, that kind of mm-hmm. attitude. And yet at Yale, everyone was taking it seriously. And there was a there was a playfulness and a seriousness that went hand in hand and committing that kind of time to to honing a craft was a gift in and of itself. And I remember getting close to the end of my time there and thinking to myself, if I never act another day, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Because I've given it my all and I've stretched myself and I've done things I never thought I would do. And uh, the bonds that I've made, you know, uh, they've been fulfilling and rewarding in a way that can never be taken away from me. So I remember feeling extremely fulfilled. They were the most fulfilling academic years of my life. Wow. Well, one thing I won't harp on, but I just feel like I should bring it up because it's something you've written about and it's something that many others have, I think, unfortunately experienced also is that it was during those years, well before you were Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o, anyone anyone had ever heard of, you were encountering some of the BS that has been exposed in the last two or so years. And I just wonder how, as a young person trying to make your way in this business, Mm. something like that can affect, I mean, you persevered. Could you see how it would have, for some people, made them run in the other direction? Yes, I can see that. Mm -hmm. And I can also see it could have ended very differently for me as well, you know. It's a road, an option I didn't take. Mm -hmm. But it, it also somehow didn't discourage me from carrying on. I mean, I think I attribute that to the foundation that I've been given and the support that I have. And I know not many people do. You know, there's lots of people who mm-hmm. don't have the kind of familial support mm-hmm. that I've I've had. Mm-hmm. So I'm always, always really grateful for that because, you know, that foundation is tested, but it hasn't wavered yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunate. I mean... That that I happened. I couldn't believe it when I read oh, you did this piece in the New York Times. It was very powerful, yeah. and I, it, I you. could not 
fathom that it, uh, before, you know, even at that stage that this jerk would be pulling that on, on with somebody. But anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the reason why I spoke up was because, first of all, the shame and the guilt, I recognized that the shame and the guilt was not mine to carry. Mm-hmm. And all of us, all of us that spoke up had been, had experienced these things in isolation. Mm-hmm. And when people started to speak up, first of all, it, uh, it, it resurfaced for me and it bothered me so much that I, that my experience wasn't unique Mm -hmm. you know that it was we i was part of a growing community and we are just the tip of the iceberg and and i i wanted to speak up because i wanted to give that added perspective you know and and be a part of the 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 change Mm -hmm. hopefully because you know if if these are the few that are speaking up i can i can't even imagine those who haven't spoken up yeah exactly well you graduate in 2012 and it's amazing. I don't know if anyone has ever so quickly coming out of school had anything like what happened, I think, within a year of mm. of that for you. Can you just share how you first even heard about the existence of something called 12 Years a Slave <laughs> and then what the process was that led you to Steve McQueen saying you're you are a patsy? Mm. So I was in I was in my last semester of school and I had I had done a, a, a show called Sugar with MTV mm-hmm. Bass and from that I had struck a relationship with a manager mm-hmm. and she Dee Dee Ray she had the script for another one of her clients and she offered she, she, she saw the role of Patsy and thought that I would be right for it. And so she had me put myself on tape. And, and then from that came another tape. And then I, it, was, it coincided with the time that I was doing the drama school showcase. Mm-hmm. And that's a time when we basically show our wares to <laughs> the industry in New York and, mm-hmm. and in L.A. So I flew to L.A. and I auditioned for Francine Maisler, the casting director, in her office. And then... A few week, uh, I think a week or so after that, I flew down to Louisiana to meet with Steve and audition again for him. So it was just this ongoing audition process, and I there was so much else going on in my life. I was trying to figure out where I was going to go after graduating, mm-hmm. what I was going to do for money, all this <laughs> stuff. So I flew back to New Haven mm-hmm. after my audition, and shortly after I landed. Steve called me and offered me the role and I just sat on the pavement I, I, I just sat on the pavement and and I called home and I couldn't believe it like you know that it had happened even before I graduated yeah, unbelievable um yeah it was a really surreal moment did you have any concept of the fact that apparently they saw something like 2000 women for this part see i didn't see, i didn't know that no, I didn't. and i'm so glad i didn't yeah, know that because that might scary. might have intimidated me way too right. much <laughs> oh my gosh well so did he ever tell you what it was that made him say out of all these people you are the person who should do this was there ever that kind of conversation no he didn't tell me that and i'm glad he didn't yeah because the one thing you don't need i personally you know when i'm going into a role i don't need my ego mm-hmm. what i need is a learning spirit I, I need to have a curiosity and I need to feed that curiosity as much as possible. I lead with my ignorance when I <laughs> when I act. Mm-hmm. 
And so knowing what I did right would not have been helpful. Yeah. Knowing what I needed to do more of was. And did he did he kind of stare that for you? Well, yes. I mean, he he said, and I think Steve knows this as well. Like he knows not to, <laughs> you know, you don't you don't um, count your chickens before they're hatched. Right. So he was like, you know, there's still work to do. You know, there's still work to do. So I will make sure you do it. And as was um, it intimidating to 100 percent you know, whatever you're gonna say uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> i mean you got all these people that are that are not only talented but very accomplished. famous accomplished people yeah. and you're gonna be thrown in the mix there it was it was crippling it was crippling mm -hmm. i remember because i was a major major fan of chuatala jafors mm -hmm. You know, and then there was Michael Fassbender mm -hmm. in that mix and Alfre Woodard and Brad Pitt. And it was just it was way too much for one system. <laughs> and, you know, I was really panicking. And I remember at one point because I was prepping for this while I was still in New Haven. And I remember at one point sitting down on a bench with my friend, my classmate, Laura Gratmans, and she and I was telling her how panicked I was. And she said to me, Lupita, you're not going to be acting with these people. You're not acting with Michael Fassbender. Mm -hmm. You're not acting with Chiota Ejiofor. You're acting with Platt mm -hmm. and you're acting with Solomon Northup and you are Patsy. You've got to be the best Patsy you know to be. Like you have to focus on that. And that was what for me Yale was about and drama school and getting the training. Mm -hmm. is It was about equipping myself with tools that I could turn to when the voice in my head gets too loud, you know? And that was what it was. It was about reminding myself that it wasn't about rising up to these personas. Mm -hmm. It was about actually truthfully committing to the characters that they were playing. Well, and to that point, I think, I believe it was Chuatel that had said this in an interview that I... I pulled up before this, that you guys are shooting in Louisiana. Some days are 100 degrees plus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the minute somebody said cut, people would be jumping into cars with air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And he was marveling at the fact that, I guess, out of a commitment to the experience of your character who had no such option, you insisted on not shielding yourself from any of that and would stay there between takes and just do anything like that to sort of as closely as possible simulate the experience of what she must have gone through. Well, I, yeah and no. It wasn't so much a method approach. It was, it was more that I hadn't been in this position before and I wanted to soak it all mm -hmm. in. Also, I love the heat. <laughs> so I much I was I was really enjoying sweating it out. But also, and but thirdly, it was about meditating on the experience and remaining close to it so that it wasn't it wasn't that much of a, a, a journey to get back to it mm -hmm. between takes because I didn't have cinematic training mm -hmm. what I had was theatrical training and with theatrical training your job is to stay in it from start to finish. So I didn't have the muscle that had been flexed that I could like leave it alone and then come back to it. I didn't know what that right. was. I was just honestly working with the tools that I yeah. had and I hadn't developed that yet. So it wasn't any, I, I couldn't do that. I didn't so know how to do that. <laughs> really interesting. Well, yeah. one of the most heartbreaking sequences in the history of movies, I think it's safe to say, is the is the whipping sequence. And I just wonder, because 
I can't imagine something more intense for any act, actor, let alone someone doing a film for the first time. Just how many times you were asked to do that and also where you go in your own mind to be able to perform something like that, which has got to be a grind, mm. to say the least. Well, you know, Steve on that day came and said, we want to do this in one shot. That meant nothing to me. Because again, my training was theatrical. Mm -hmm. So my the idea of doing something over and over again and staying with it, that was all I knew. So I wasn't daunted by that. It didn't mean. <laughs> I was just like, okay, great. And I also didn't really fully at that time understand the difference between one take and 75. Mm -hmm. Because he generally shot really fast anyway. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, I was, I had been preparing for that day from the moment I got the role, you know, and I always knew that day was coming and I was dreading it, but also really looking forward to having it in my rear view. And we did it. I feel like we may have done it three or four times. It wasn't very many. And I think the take that is in the film might be the second one. Mm -hmm. I might be. There was something about well, like a headscarf had to come off, right? Yes, that was the thing. A headscarf had to come off so that I didn't have it at the moment of the whipping. And then it just happened organically. And I remember him saying, that's it, that's it, that's it, <laughs> you know. But I think the thing that m for me made it possible was I really did approach my preparation for Patsy as though it was a play. Mm -hmm. And the good thing was that it didn't change from my very first audition. That script was so well written, mm -hmm. you know? And so I could prepare in order and then shoot it in a, in a, in a, out of sequence. Out of order, sequence. Yeah. But I was ready and holding uh, her story throughout. Um, so I always knew where she was in that moment. And it was also about not making it precious. You know, like that thing of the scene. I had to get away from that. This is another day in Patsy's life, and this is what she's faced. You know what I mean? And when Lupita goes home at the end of the night after that, is, I was I was yeah. broken. Yeah, I was broken, and I made the mistake of sleeping with her scars. Actually, I think that was what made it even crazier. Uh, after I think it was yeah that the day before we had shot a scene that was pr prior to the whipping. So I had some scars on mm -hmm. my back. And our makeup artist, Kala Devi, said, we can take these off, but you have to come in three extra hours early. I said, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> these could stay on my back. Right. You can build on them tomorrow. Right. So the day before that, I slept with the scars. And it was haunting mm -hmm. to have them on my back. Mm -hmm. And I was just very, I feel like I was very, I was visited by uh, the spirits of New Orleans while I was making that film. You can feel it when you're in New Orleans. There's like a, there's an age and a memory and a history in New Orleans that you 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 have to be completely blind yeah, and deaf and a, uh, you know yeah. unpresent yeah. not to feel. Yeah. And and on that that night it would, they were on my back, you know? Uh so I I got to set already extremely heavy. Mm -hmm. And then it was just about letting it, letting it flow. Yeah. That first screening at the Telluride Film Festival, I was there. I, f I think it was the Galaxy Theater there. And the one where 
afterwards the q and a is done by somebody who i who is this guy barry jenkins and then you ends up uh, we all know where that went <laughs> yeah um so i guess i just wonder your life probably seriously began to change that night and because everybody coming out of that was talking about the film but also about who is this mm-hmm. and that went on for the next however many six months um right up through the Oscars. And I guess I just wonder how you process this change on on a side of things from the perspective of just being now somebody that everyone is increasingly becoming aware of and talking about and approaching and just in terms of your ability to go about your day-to-day life and all of it. It must have been so much so quickly. Yeah. It was <laughs> it was a many splendid thing. <laughs> That was a very, very intense time of my life. One in which I meditated on allowing for bounty. You know, in school, they always would prepare us for the failures and the rejections and things like that and the long toil of being an actor. But they did not really prepare us for success, recognition, appreciation, all those things. And I had to make room for it. You know, there's a way in which sometimes good things can be coming your way. And if you're not ready, you can miss it, you know. And uh, I have really good people around me. And my best friend would always say, meditate on on success. Just meditate on saying yes, saying yes, you know, thank you. And, and gratitude for what's coming your way. And so that was a time of major, major gratitude. And for, I was lucky that I had nothing else on my table. And that was on purpose. I didn't want to have any role to prepare for in the midst because I wanted to be present to that moment because I also understood that that moment would never happen again. It just would never happen. It would never be as virgin as it was then. But also it was it was scary because, you know, there's all of a sudden the world is opening up to you and more people are aware of you than you are aware of people. And that is a very weird transaction negotiation to navigate and and then there's also the question of what next that is on everyone's lips at the end of every interview (laughs) and you do not know and what do you do you know and so it was allowing for the bounty but also allowing for the uncertainty you know and being exactly where I was when I was there and it took time it took time for me to grow into those shoes well so I guess the height of it must have been Oscar night Mm -hmm. um Going into that, just in your own mind, did you think you were likely to win? And, I mean, there had been a lot of other award shows leading up to it where you'd done quite quite well. And so just did you think you were going to win? And then what's that moment like when they say your name in front of the world? You know, one thing that people forget, <laughs> that people might not realize, is that award season is long. Yes, I realize. And <laughs> yes. it, there are so many moments of accolades. Mm-hmm along that path. And so that Oscar week alone, I went to my first Independent Spirit mm-hmm. Award. I went to my first Essence Black Women in Hollywood Award. I went to my first, um, the week before, I think it was like SAG. Yeah. All these things were new and I was up for all of them and they were all thrilling. Right. So for me, it wasn't like the Oscars was this bright shining light at the top of some you know, galaxy, and then everything else was dust. All of it was amazing. All of it was incredible. And then it just ended Mm -hmm. with the Oscars. It culminated (laughs) with the Oscars. But I was living in a state of like, 
of like shock yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for a long period of time. So right. and I for every single one of those events, uh, you know, for me, I I love preparation, and so with for everything I prepare. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a one in five chance yeah. that they might call my name, and so I was doing that all along the way and the oscars was no different Mm -hmm. i was like you know what i need to approach this day like every other day with just enough just as much respect joy excitement and fear Mm -hmm. as every other Mm -hmm. day and so that day i had a one in five chance of of being of my name being called and i knew that they might call my name or they might not. And I have to be prepared for both. Yeah. So that's what it was. And then, of course, when the moment happens, I didn't believe it. Like, because in my head, I thought I'd said my own name. <laughs> and then I heard, I saw my brother's right. reaction. And it was when I saw my brother's reaction that it dawned on me that they'd actually called my name. And then I I, I saw a, a gif recently where I'm going down the aisle yeah. and I say, oh, shit. <laughs> Well, and I was so amazed that even with that storm all around you and in your head and everything that's happening that moment, you gave such a great speech that it was even when you subsequently, I guess, for the first time went back to Kenya and they were, you know, you're the conquering or the returning hero. (laughs) They were even quoting the speech, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean... I don't know. You know, I ne- I have never watched that speech again. My mom tells me I cried all through it. I don't believe her. <laughs> and, you know, there's grace in the world. And that was one of those days where, you know, grace saved me. Uh, well, <laughs> what's interesting is that after the Oscar, you took, you know, that's when people are saying strike while the iron's hot, all of that, right? But you took some time uh before really committing to things. I had read at one point you were saying Emma Thompson had been the one that was saying, mm-hmm. uh, go back to the stage, which you did with Eclipse. Now that yeah. you had the clout to do that, you guys were great off-Broadway at the public, then on Broadway, first all-black, all-woman, written, directed, and starring production. Um, but I guess I just wonder, and again, we should say, this goes back to Yale. It's you, Deny, Liesl, Tommy, right? Mm-hmm. And you were turning down films in order to honor that commitment to do the play right I mean Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what were you was there a you must have had people on all sides say you know advocating different approaches and I just wonder you know it seems like it can't it can't be a coincidence that it was a while before we saw you as you with your face in a movie many people were remarking on this that you know we then go and see you as Maz Kanata in Mm -hmm. The Force Awakens (laughs) we then go and see you or hear you as a voice in the Jungle Book, but we were not seeing Lupita Nyong'o's face in a movie. What was that about? It was about, first of all, catching up to my reality. And I felt like, you know, with 12 years and its release, there had been such a, a lot made out of, like, my body, you know, as a commodity. You know, a fashion commodity, mm-hmm. a, a symbol of like a very dark time in American history and mm-hmm. and everything. And when JJ offered me Maz, it was shortly after. It was, yeah, it was like, I think the April wow. after the Oscars. Wow. I, I, I said yes, because it was offering me a chance to do what I love and also to be invisible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wanted to be invisible for mm-hmm. a moment, you know? Because I wanted, after that award, 
it's it's the pinnacle it's supposed to be the pinnacle of one's career isn't it mm -hmm. and yet it was the start of mine mm -hmm. and so i was I was completely confused and discombobulated and I was people were asking me what next and I didn't know what next and strike while they are in this what does that mean mm -hmm. and I had to really ask myself why am I doing this do I want to go forth in a career where all I'm looking for is for the recognition mm -hmm. or or what what is it that I want to mm -hmm. do why am I here why am I doing this and I needed to kind of recommit to my craft and I needed the time to do that mm -hmm. And working on Star Wars was a chance to do that while still keeping my, my hat in the game. Mm -hmm. Jungle Book was just like such a cool project mm -hmm. and, and I loved it. And, and honestly, none of the film projects that I had been offered were as interesting to me as Eclipsed. Mm -hmm. And being on stage fulfilled me and it was a thing that I knew so well. When I won that Academy Award, I had not acted in almost... That was in 2014. I hadn't acted since 2012. Wow. So I had not done the thing that I was being praised for. <laughs> and I really just wanted to get yeah, back to doing do that thing and yeah. remind myself, do, do I still have it? You know, because when you've been talking about it for yeah. so long, you can kind of psych yourself out. <laughs> and so I wanted to like just have that time, get back into a rehearsal room and get back to collaborating with people. The thing about awards, they're so amazing, but they, but they fail to recognize the team mm -hmm. that makes a thing happen. You know, it's very hard for that to recognition to come. So you can get sidelined by this, the, by the singularity of the recognition and it can play games with your head where you start to, to, to kind of believe your own hype. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think though you, you kept it together enough to know that if I can, if, if I have a certain currency or whatever the word would be at this moment, let me lend it to something like Queen of Cotway mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. that probably needed a little bit more uh, attention and love than it would, it would easily otherwise get. And then the ultimate example of, of, of a team serving a uh, project with a important uh, message on the service and subliminally and everything would have to be Black Panther. Mm -hmm. I mean, that one, I'm always curious how they even convince somebody to commit to do it. Aside from, you know, I'm sure it's, it's, it's nice compensation, but they can't show you a script. Right. Know, yeah. So how did, what did you, did you, what was your understanding of what you were even signing up to do for that one? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I knew that it was going to be a first mm -hmm. for Marvel to have a black superhero film. The fact that it was a fictitious African nation was interesting to me. Ryan Coogler is a really interesting artist and has a unique voice. And so these were three things that caught my attention. Mm -hmm. I find that I am most turned on when I am part of projects that change the narrative and black panther was promising to do yeah. that and so when ryan walked me through his idea of the script listen when they said oh they're interested in you for black panther it wasn't an immediate but yes i was like wait okay so what is it about mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then ryan walked me through his idea and then it was like okay 
Now it's obviously right. a yes because he was doing something so radical. Mm -hmm. He was saying something so radical. And I just didn't know that there was space for that in uh, the the comic book genre. And this Hollywood you know? studio system. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know, that they were really going to be taking a risk and really addressing certain social political issues head on without compromising the, the fantasy and the, you know, the magic, the aspirational quality that we so love in this, in this this, these these worlds that they create. I know you've done Star Wars, so that was a big scale thing, but this has to have been just at a different scale, different level, right, than anything, and CGI and all that. Is that a way that, do you find it just as easy to work on that size of a project, or is it is it harder to, to sort of maintain control of your character and what you're doing in that? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is distractions mm -hmm. because the big projects have a lot of distractions. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of technical things and all that. And it's easy to get sidelined by those things and to lose track of your one job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you have to kind of recommit to the work of just your character because that's what you're hired to do. You're hired to eliminate the truth of your one character. Yeah, the work, I think, of being on a big film that's different is just recommitting to that in a way that you don't necessarily have to do on a smaller film because on your smaller film your performance is the magic mm -hmm. right um, bigger films you are negotiating all types of magic yeah. that are going to come and augment what you're doing right well could you quite wrap your head around how i mean again you've been a part of very successful things critically commercially and whatever but this made a, a an impact on probably more people than anything not only that you had done but anyone had done in a long time <laughs> yeah. right uh yeah. how did when you're in the bubble uh -huh. of being part of that what yeah. did it what was your awakening that that was act that it had actually become as big as it did i mean it started with the trailer yes, yes. you know and you know social media uh, has hosts such interesting communities you know <laughs> and so when the trailer dropped and everyone was doing their reaction video and everyone was doing the memes and the gifs about what they were going to be wearing and whatnot that was like whoa i have never i have never seen anything like this before you know and then the film came out and to see people all over the world documenting in video and pictures what they were wearing just to go and see a film, to sit in a dark room and watch something but dressed to the nines. I mean, it was like a renaissance of like imagination, you know, and that was when I knew, OK, we're making and it, it was worldwide. It wasn't just within one community. It wasn't it was everywhere and with everyone, race, creed. It opened in in where did it open where they hadn't had cinema forever. <laughs> I, I can't remember which country, but, you know, yeah. that was happening. So I knew that this was was different and it was appealing to people to 80 year olds yeah. and 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 four year olds, yeah. you know. So I, I knew then that, you know, this was this was a definitive moment. In it's cool. And especially after <laughs> you put two years of your life into something, mm -hmm. it's nice probably to have it go over well. But yeah. it was in the midst, I think, probably before that came out. But after it had been completed, that you first maybe went to see Get Out? It was while we were making while it. While you were making yeah, it? Yeah, it was while we were making it. We had Daniel Kaluuya on set. And I remember it was during our boot camp, our six-week boot camp, the fall of 2015, right, mm -hmm. that 
the trailer for Get Out came out, and it was the first time that I wrote down the release of a film in my calendar because <laughs> I saw it and I said, "This is going to be amazing." Yeah. Jot it down, and then and then it came out while we were shooting, and I went to see it five times in one month, <laughs> and brought other <laughs> and people I brought with, the yeah. whole cast of Black Panther to see it, and we spent like three hours afterwards just talking yeah. about what we'd seen. It was incredible. So. That being the case that you hold Jordan Peele in that high esteem, how do you find out that he has now written not one, but two parts with you in mind for his for his next project? I mean, how, how, was there, what was the initial outreach? Well, Jordan was slick. <laughs> so while we were shooting Black Panther, the first thing he did, Daniel came up to me and said, Jordan Peele wants to get in touch with you. Can I give him your email? I was like, why are you talking to me? <laughs> give him my email immediately. <laughs> he put us in touch. And then it took a while before I sat with him after we finished Black Panther. And we just had a general meeting. We were just like chatting over lunch. And then he mentioned that he might have something that would work for me that he was pondering, but it might also not be for me. And then the next thing I knew, a year later, my agent just delivered his script to me and my inbox mm -hmm. and said Jordan has written this you have the offer for this role read it and I read it immediately <laughs> immediately yeah. and, and then I decided to play it slick, slick yeah. too <laughs> and I got him on the phone and we talked about it and um, after him saying a few times if you take this role and if you take that or this role blah 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 and I said who are we kidding I'm taking this role <laughs> I accept it. <laughs> well, it, and it's really two roles. I mean, it's really two roles. I get to, I got to work with him twice in one yeah. movie. <laughs> and you know, as we as we wind to the to the end here, I, I just a few last things. I think there people have really remarked upon what a transformation you make between playing Adelaide and playing Red, and to have to keep track of that. Aside from you know, it's hard enough when it's just doing things out of sequence on a mm -hmm. movie, but to be who am I today and what am I, you know, all of that. This involved very specific movement, very specific vocal work mm -hmm. that you did. I know a lot of things to prepare for. And then the just the technical aspect of, I guess, figuring out how you shoot it so that you're playing with your acting with yourself. Yeah. So can you just shed a little light on the way that you guys actually, the way that you actually brought this to fruition? Well, Jordan gave me a great blueprint in the mm -hmm. script, and he left a lot of clues about who these women were. And then obviously it took re talking to him very closely. And I invited Jordan into my creative process in a way that I haven't really invited any director before because he's that kind of artist. He's very trustworthy, and he wants to collaborate deeply with the people he works with. Uh, for these characters, I had to be very, very clear about who they were technically not just emotionally mm -hmm. but technically mm -hmm. because I had to have a formula a reliable formula to move from one to another and I also had to create them so that you could see the similarities but also for them to have distinctions right mm -hmm. so with Adelaide because she was uh, pursuing normalcy uh, I approached her performance with a naturalism you know she's she's not trying to stand out in any sort of way she has a bit to hide and so another thing was in terms of posture I, I, I had this kind of uh, govern mm -hmm. the choices I made so posture I was always a little twisted a little you know not not straight um, um, she never really presented herself straight mm -hmm. 
And then um, with Red, she is from another world, mm -hmm. right? For, from a subterranean mm -hmm. world. And so I decided to approach her with a more stylized performance well, as well. Queen Cockroach. That was the yes, exactly. direction that you gave. Yeah, yeah, Jordan said she was queen and cockroach. <laughs> and so there was a regality to her, but also an unpredictability mm -hmm. and, and a resilience mm -hmm. like a cockroach. So you're never really sure what way she might move, but mm -hmm. when she moves that way, it's with de like <laughs> with definition, right. you know? And so, yeah, these were things that we were talking about and really helped me make those choices for myself and then hold on to them. And then the voice, I mean, I think it's fascinating because I, you know, people are truly jarred when they hear you do it. They're <laughs> like, whoa, is, what's going on? Is, is this a, um, a effect or is this? And it was interesting, though, because I think, I, you know, people can have their opinions about it, but I think it's actually done a service to call attention to the fact that there is a actual affliction, I guess you would say, that causes people to have that sort of a spasmatic voice and you sought out in the world and were able to channel it into this character which seemed very appropriate to me well yeah and i think but i think what it was is that i researched different kinds of of vocal traumas and injuries and I wanted to create something that was unique and individual. So this was inspired by those things. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a springboard, but mm -hmm. it was not at all a representation mm -hmm. of those things. Mm -hmm. So I think that's very important to know because mm -hmm. she is a fictional character and I wanted to imbue her with the truth. And you always start with what is actually factual in the world, at mm -hmm. least for me, and then, you know, kind of interpret it. And so there, it is an artic artistic interpretation and a... Uh, amalgamation of the things that I uh, that I researched just um, one last thing about that those characters was that I saw somebody in their write-up said that the the showdown at uh, towards the end between your two characters they said quote the scene effectively condenses the entirety of black swan in a single montage <laughs> close quote which was interesting uh, but I mean to it's just an amazing thing in the movie costs 20 million makes 250 million that's a amazing thing that means Jordan Peele gets to keep making these kinds of yeah. smart mid-range budget movies and mm -hmm. all of that so I think that's exciting and I I guess just to, to close there's what I what we kind of call rapid fire just the first thing that comes to your mind okay. about some big picture stuff I think Will Smith and Michael B. Jordan have both spoken about the fact and maybe Denzel as well if I recall mm. that the ideal thing is when you're getting scripts or considering scripts if it's not a role that specifies this is a person of color which was to me us there's no it doesn't matter they could be Mexican they could be whatever do you find just to get a sense of how the industry is evolving mm -hmm. that are you being offered things where what percentage of things that you are approached about have no basis whatsoever on race? my race? Yes. Hmm. That's interesting. I've never really thought about that. You know, never tallied. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but chart. I think there is like there is a place for a story where race is the subject and there's mm -hmm. a place and then there is a place for it not to be mm -hmm. the subject. Like get out. Yeah. Get out. Race is the subject on the table. Right. And then us, the race is circumstantial. Mm -hmm. It's not what we're talking about. In right. us, we're talking about class. And you just happen to be hearing the story from with with black people in the four and that is that is the radical act right mm -hmm. that
that you can see the black family as the every family, mm -hmm. you know, the every American, the all American yeah. family. And yes, yeah, so both those things are important, but there are other paradigms other than racial ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and so with, with, in my experience, I think my question is not so much, is this free of racial paradigms or not? Is, the, is it effective as telling the story that it's trying to tell? Mm -hmm. Because there is a world in which the, uh, considering the race is extremely important. And then there's times when it's right. not. What is still on your to-do list or the bucket list, as they say? What would, what's the most important things to you that you'd like to be able to do? I know that it's sort of like that cliche, like what's next, but I'm saying more, if you could do anything, which you at some point probably can, what would that be? Yeah, that's a hard question. I always find that question hard because I don't, I, I don't know whether my career has been, I don't know. I, I go according to feelings more than articulated thought, mm -hmm. you know, right now I'm, I'm producing and about to star in my first TV, Americana. you know, series, yeah. and that's Americana. Yes. I've been working on it for like years, five years. Yeah, I remember hearing It's about like, it. oh, it's about time. <laughs> so that's all I can think of. Right. And I'm in the process, we're in the process of casting. And it's so interesting to be sitting on the other side mm -hmm. of the table where I'm looking at the, the auditions and discussing why one person's take is better than the other. Mm -hmm. It's really weird. I feel like I'm cheating on myself somehow. <laughs> but um, I'd say that that's what I'm most excited excited about yeah. being part of a project from the very that beginning and, yeah. and, and creating it to its Finally, end. Mm -hmm. if you could go back, I guess it's now probably would be about seven years, not that long, mm -hmm. to right before you heard about 12 Years a Slave yeah. and say to that Lupita Nyong'o something, uh -huh. what would you, what should she know? I honestly feel like I had dreams but they were never this size, you know? <laughs> and so you're discouraged from, especially as a woman, I think it's not, it's not cool, it's not acceptable to, to be lofty in what you want. And I would encourage that girl to be lofty. I continue to encourage myself mm -hmm. to be lofty. And it's not about the size of the dream, it's about the quality of it, right? And what impact do you want to have? And if that impact has largesse, then so be it, mm -hmm. you know? And if it doesn't, that's cool too. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's really more enlightening than just about any episode I think we've ever had, so I really oh, appreciate it. It's great you. to see you. Thank you. Great talking to you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of the Hollywood Reporters podcast network. Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sons Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wiggler's Series Regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening.